halfway through the month of January, and 5% through the year of 2023. All of these types of measurements are arbitrary, but much of the way our world is organized has a starting point. This, for instance, is the 486th version of Charlottesville Community Engagement, but even that number is potentially imaginary. So much of our human world is imaginary, which is why it's important to write down as much of it as possible, so as many as possible can share in both the delusion and the bounty. On today's program, Michael Kotchis has begun his role as the new Charlottesville Police Chief. The latest campaign finance activity is in for the second half of 2022, with several contested General Assembly primary races reflected. Three projects to fix safety issues in Albemarle County roads have been recommended for funding, as, as one in Nelson County, and a look at what's made it through the General Assembly so far and what has not. In today's first Patreon-fueled shout-out, crisp air and not-so-colorful leaves anymore, hot cocoa, snow days. There are plenty of reasons to continue to be excited about winter, but the high heating bills is not one of them. Your local energy nonprofit, LEAP, has been empowering Virginians with energy efficiency and solar solutions since 2010. With programs for all income levels, residents can access upgrades like insulation, LED bulbs, low flow fixtures, and affordable rooftop solar systems. Visit leapva.org to learn more and fill out the LEAP Services Inquiry Form to lower high heating bills and stay cozy this winter. Michael Kotchis has been on the job as Charlottesville's police chief since Monday, but his swearing-in came yesterday at the tail end of a city council work session. Here is interim city manager Michael C. Rogers. Mr. Mayor, council, we've arrived at the time where we can welcome a new member to our family here in the city of Charlottesville, a new leader uh, for the Charlottesville uh, Police Department. Kotchis was sworn in by Circuit Court Clerk Lizelle Duggar. Let's hear the entire procedure. Please raise your right hand and repeat after me. I, please state your name. I, Michael Kotchis. Do solemnly swear or affirm. Do solemnly swear or affirm. That I will support the Constitution of the United States. That I will support the Constitution of the United States. And the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And the Constitution of the Commonwealth of Virginia. And that I will faithfully. And I will faithfully. And impartially. And impartially. Discharge and perform. Discharge and perform. All the duties incumbent upon me. All the duties incumbent upon me. As the Chief of Police for the City of Charlottesville. As the Chief of Police of the City of Charlottesville. According to the best of my ability. According to the best of my ability. So help me God. So help me God. After this brief ceremony, counselors had brief remarks. Charlottesville Mayor Lloyd Snook said he was intrigued by coaches referring to the 21st century policing efforts during the administration of former President Barack Obama during his interview. The first pillar of 21st century policing is to build trust and legitimacy. And that's what Charlottesville badly needs right now. And everybody we've talked to says, you're the man to do that. Councillor Brian Pinkston said he felt that Kotchis wanted to be part of the next chapter of Charlottesville's story. 
Vice Mayor Juan Diego Wade said he saw Cotches and his wife at Martin's Hardware the other day. That's Charlottesville right there, so welcome aboard. Look forward to working with you. Rogers said he was impressed that Cotches found a place to live here within a week of being hired. In his remarks, Cotches listed his day one strategy. I need to learn, I need to listen, and to get an idea of what this community and what our officers expect of their chief of police. Chief Cotches said the first priority will be to build on community partnerships and address gun violence in the city. On his first day of work, there was a shots fired incident on Cherry Avenue in Hanover Street that was reported by the University of Virginia Police Department, but not the city. We also need to understand that taking guns off the street is an incredibly dangerous and complex work and will require a collaborative approach between the community and our officers. And to do this, we're going to need to trust each other. That involves the community trust as well. Gotchis said the second priority is to recruit additional officers, and the third is to treat officers better. The first campaign finance reports for the 2023 election are in, and they look back to activity from the second half of 2022. In House District 55, Republican incumbent Rob Bell raised $85,055 in the period and spent $25,822. 85 of the 88 contributions were in excess of $100, with Paul Manning contributing $10,000 and Ted Weschler contributing $10,000. Bell's campaign committee spent $8,000 and gave that to the Republican Commonwealth Leadership Pack. Bell has two Democratic challengers competing in the June 20th primary. Former Charlottesville School Board member Amy Lawfer raised $59,525 in the second half of 2022, with 97 contributions more than $100 and 218 less than that amount. Higher levels of donations include $5,000 from Sonia Smith and $2,500 from developer Barbara Freed. Lawfer had a balance of $88,761 on December 31st, and the total amount raised includes $3,100 in in-kind donations. Emergency room nurse Kellen Squire raised $63,107 in the period, with 85 contributions in excess of 100 and 714 below that threshold. The total figure also includes 19,255 in in-kind donations of more than 100. Squire had a balance of $45,187 on December 31st. Squire also received $5,000 from Sonia Smith and $5,000 from Clean Virginia. In House District 54, there are currently three candidates in the race, but only one reported campaign finance activity in 2022. Katrina Carlson raised $11,565 with 10 contributions above 100. A person named Catherine Ordway contributed $5,000 as well. The campaign gave $1,000 to a group called Leadership for Educational Equity and had $10,509 on hand at the end of December. Other candidates who have filed statements of organization with the Department of Elections are Fifeville resident Deshad Cooper and former Charlottesville Mayor David Brown. House District 54 is an open seat because its current occupant is challenging a fellow Democrat in the primary for Senate District 11. Sally Hudson had two political action campaigns during the period. 
The one for a potential delegate race began the period with $22,981 and raised $15,757 during the period. A transfer of $4,861 was made to Hudson's Senate campaign on November 21, 2022. The Senate campaign raised $184,168 in the final six weeks of 2022, with 80 cash contributions of more than 100. These include $30,000 from Sonia Smith, $25,000 from Kay Lee Ferguson, $10,000 from Ann Worrell, and $10,000 from Park Capshaw. There are six contributions of $5,000 apiece. The total amount raised includes $19,354 in in-kind contributions, all from Sonia Smith. The campaign had $149,701 on hand at the end of the year. Hudson is challenging incumbent Cree Deeds, who began the reporting period with $100,175 and raised $230,693 between July 1st and December 31st. The top donations were $10,000 from the Virginia Trial Lawyers Political Action Committee and $10,000 from Mr. Edward H. Rice. Deeds' campaign had eight contributions of $5,000 apiece. In all, Deeds had 222 contributions in excess of $100. Deeds had $293,131 ending on December 31, 2022. Earlier this month, Republican Philip Hamilton filed paperwork to also be a candidate in District 11. Hamilton ran against Delegate Hudson in the 2021 race for what was House of Delegates seat 57. Hamilton received 21.3% of the vote. His campaign raised $7,019 from two contributions in 2022. These were $4,150 from Majority Strategies LLC and $2,869 from Woodfin Law Offices. The Virginia Public Access Project lists another candidate in the race. Jariah Guerrero is an independent who did not file a report yesterday. He is the chair of the Charlottesville Economic Development Authority. There are also reports in for the four Republican candidates for Senate District 10. Louisa County Supervisor Chair Dwayne Adams raised $68,717 in the second half of 2022. His campaign had a balance of $215,742 on December 31st. Jack Dyer raised $71,205 in the period and had an ending balance of $179,502. Delegate John McGuire raised $78,325 for his Senate campaign and had $38,448 left at the end of the year. Sandy Brindley raised $8,625 in the second half of 2022 and spent nearly all of it with an ending balance of $350. There are 153 days until the June 20th primary and 293 days until the general election on November 7th. So far, there's almost no activity for local races. In fact, there is only one declared candidate for the three Albemarle Board of Supervisor races. Michael Pruitt is seeking the Democratic nomination for the Scottsville district seat that is being vacated by Donna Price. Pruitt raised $3,499 from September 12th to December 31st. 
Nine of the contributions were above $100, with 20 below that amount. Supervisor Anne Malik has not yet said whether she will seek a fifth term representing the Whitehall District. Supervisor B. Lepisto-Kirtley has not revealed if she will seek a second term representing the Rivanna District. No candidates have filed paperwork for the three seats on Charlottesville City Council as of yesterday. There is one open seat that will be appointed by the remaining four councillors, and applicants have until January 30th to fill in their request to be considered to complete the term of former councillor Cena McGill. One candidate has emerged in Nelson County. James C. Bibb is seeking the Republican nomination for the South District seat, currently held by Democrat Robert Barton. The other seat up for election this year is the West District seat, held by David Parr. More information as soon as it becomes available. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement. And, you know, the existence of this thing really means that many of you are supporting local information. You might want to support some local businesses as well. Good place to start is the Buy Local campaign, which is in full swing. And both the Albemarle and Charlottesville offices of economic development want people to consider spending locally as they shop throughout the year. The Buy Local campaign highlights small businesses within Charlottesville and Albemarle County through a multi-channel, multimedia, promotional, and educational campaign designed to reinforce how important supporting area small businesses is to the local economy. This campaign is going to continue long after the holidays. Keep in mind we have President's Day coming up soon. Locally owned, independent businesses with a brick and mortar presence in the city or county who would like to be featured in this campaign should visit www.showlocallove.org or contact info at showlocallove.org. Also take a look at their Facebook and Instagram and Twitter accounts for more information and tell them Charlottesville Community Engagement sent you. This is a sponsored advertisement and different from the shout-outs. I think it's really important for me to say that in the rare occasions when this might happen. Transportation planners across the Commonwealth got new information yesterday on what projects are likely to receive funding this year. Three projects in Albemarle to improve various streets and intersections have been recommended in the latest round of the Virginia Department of Transportation's SmartScale process. The fifth SmartScale round is the largest one since the program began in 2016. Brooke Jackson is VDOT's program manager for SmartScale. We had 413 applications this round, and we screened and validated and had 394 eligible applications to be scored this round. We are recommending in the staff recommended funding scenario that 152 applications get funded. Jackson spoke yesterday at the meeting of the Commonwealth Transportation Board. The total amount across Virginia requested was $8.3 billion in projects, the total to be allocated will be $1.5 billion. That's more money than had been anticipated a couple of months ago. 
Before the smart scale discussion, the CTB got an update on potential revenue for the next six years from Jennifer Farmer, chief financial officer for the Virginia Department of Transportation. The Department of Taxation provided um, a revenue estimate update to us for consideration, and it included significant growth across three major revenue sources that fund transportation. Over the period through 2029, uh, retail sales and use are up over $600 million. Uh, the expectations on motor vehicle sales is $473 million more over previous um, estimates, and the motor fuels tax over the course of the period is ju up just over a billion dollars. Additional revenue is expected from the federal government as well. All told, there's $1.9 billion in unanticipated revenue. However, there are also additional costs to consider as VDOT looks at the overall picture for the next six years, such as the effects of inflation. SmartScale was mandated by legislation in 2014 that required new transportation projects to be scored and ranked according to how they fit various needs, including relieving congestion, addressing safety concerns, and boosting economic development. Um, SmartScale focuses on the change that an improvement brings, not just what it's doing, it's whether or not it actually makes a difference in safety, congestion, accessibility, etc. Secretary of Transportation Shep Miller was on the Commonwealth Transportation Board when the SmartScale process began. He said the system that it replaced did not deliver for the Commonwealth. It is radically different than us in the old days trading back and forth as to what was going to happen in Virginia on getting roads built and maintained, which was not a good system. VDOT is divided into several geographical districts. The Culpeper District is set to receive $138.1 million, but this year there is a 12% contingency taken out for inflation. Districts with dedicated taxes on motor fuels get more funding based on local generation of those revenues. That's not the case with the Culpeper District, where there were 38 applications. In addition, projects can also qualify through the High Priority Projects Program. In all, VDOT staff are recommending 13 projects in the Culpeper District. Culpepper's results were characterized by a number of spot and intersection improvements targeting safety as well. And there was a few well-rounded projects in there. Projects recommended for funding are Avon Street Multimodal Improvements, $15.8 million. US 250 Peter Jefferson Parkway Intersection Improvements, Park and Ride and Access Management for $20.55 million. And Belvedere Boulevard Rio Road Intersection Improvements, that's nearly $5 million for Albemarle County. Several projects were not recommended for funding, including improvements on 5th Street Extended, a roundabout at District Avenue and Hydraulic Road, and a bike and pedestrian bridge across the Rivanna River. A project to improve pedestrian safety on US 250 at Wolken Road scored 15th in the district, just below the cutoff. No projects are recommended for funding in either Fluvanna, Green, or Louisa counties. The city of Charlottesville did not submit any applications in this round. Nelson County is within VDOT's Lynchburg district, where 12 projects are recommended for funding. A $15.7 million project to alter the intersection of Route 6 and Route 151 ranked 9th in the district. The Commonwealth Transportation Board will vote on the smart scale funding in June. 
Between now and then, some projects may be altered or withdrawn, so this isn't the final recommendation yet. Stay tuned, because I'm going to report on this and hope you're along for the ride. The General Assembly has been in session for a week now, and the first bills from this year have begun to fail, while others have advanced. Here's an incomplete but somewhat informational status update. A bill has failed that would direct the Department of Social Services to study whether people who possess or use marijuana should have their children removed. The bill did not even make it to committee and was stricken on Monday. HB 1489 would have required those who practice naturopathic medicine to get a license. That was stricken yesterday by the House Health, Welfare, and Institutions Committee. Another bill to restrict the absentee voting period to two weeks was laid on the table in a subcommittee of the House Privileges and Elections Committee on a unanimous vote yesterday. A bill has moved forward to require local registrars to cancel the voter registration of a dead person within seven days of discovering that they have died. HB 1377 was read for the first time yesterday in the full House after being reported out from the Privileges and Elections Committee last week on a 19-2 to vote. HB 1379 would require public school libraries to produce a spreadsheet of all printed and audiovisual materials and list if each has sexual material. A House Education Subcommittee moved that bill to the full committee yesterday on a 5-3 to vote. A similar bill would require the Department of Education to create a model policy for the removal of materials that some parents find objectionable. That made it out of the same subcommittee yesterday, also on a 5-3 to three vote. However, a bill to require the Department of Education to develop materials related to sexual harassment prevention training failed to recommend reporting, with three yes votes and five no votes. Legislation to allow law enforcement officers to once again pull over motorists for not having brake lights or other safety features made it out of a subcommittee of the Courts of Justice panel. HB 1380 was voted out on a 5-3 to three vote. HB 1403 would require certain colleges and universities to provide housing to certain students in between academic sessions. On Monday, the Higher Education Subcommittee of the House Education Committee recommended moving that forward on a unanimous vote. A bill to require the Department of Taxation to post a list of transient occupancy taxes in all localities has made it out of a subcommittee of the House Finance Committee, also on a unanimous vote. And finally today, HB 1485 would extend the compliance date for the pollution cleanup process known as the Chesapeake Bay TMDL from 2025 to 2030. A subcommittee of the Agriculture, Chesapeake, and Natural Resources Committee recommended approval on a 6-4 to four vote. And that is the end of this program. Smart scale, elections, campaign finance, new police chief. There is still so much more that could have fit into this particular newsletter. Now, podcast listener, I'm not putting this part down, but when I went to look for stories today in the Daily Progress, I had to dig so deeply to get to anything local. Um, And there's so much that's happening. And I'm telling you, there is information that's not getting reported, but at least I am trying to build up something here that will hopefully... Uh, change that. But now let me get to the part that is the written part because, you know, I kind of want to put that in writing, but 
You podcast listeners, I should tell you more things. But we are now in the days when there is so much information flowing, and I am honored to get to bring as much of it to you as possible. I trained as a journalist for years and left a job in reporting after 11 years, five years ago, for reasons I've likely stated in the past. What matters now is that I spend every single day working to try to bring you information about things about local and state government that I think you should know. And many of you are supporting this work financially. Thank you. I really appreciate it. I strive to be an independent voice and with about 500 people contributing, that allows me to just concentrate on reporting much of the same material I have wanted to report on for my whole career. And so I have. I have been told so many times by editors that what I want to do is boring, but I suspect those paying me directly don't think so, and I'm glad to get to show what I can do each and every day. If you've not paid for a subscription yet, no pressure, but if you did opt to pay through Substack, Ting will match your initial payment. I cannot stress how crucial this has been to me being able to build this body of work up one day at a time. Thanks to Ting, I am able to put most of my focus on this newsletter. I am doing more freelance work, but this newsletter and its cousin, 5th District Community Engagement, are my top priorities. And if you want to upgrade your internet provider, check out Ting. If you sign up at a link in the newsletter and enter the promo code COMMUNITY, you will get free installation, a second month for free, and a $75 gift card to the downtown mall. Thank you to Vraki for the music. There is going to be a new closing tune composed by Vraki, beginning with 500, and hopefully other audio cues will show up here and there that are new. Do give the podcast chance a chance. Wait, I'm reading the bit that I that is not for you because you're listening to this. Anyway, thanks to the people who do the audio sound bites. If you'd like to join them, if you like the audio, drop me a line because I want to keep doing it. But at some point, some bean counter might ask me to say, hey, why are you doing this when the newsletter is read by more people? You know why I do it? Because it's fun and because I get to do weird things like repeat the entire Ting subscription thing in reverse. You'll hear that in a minute after the sign off. Mall Downtown, the two-card gift, $75 A, free for month, second month, second day. Installation free. Get Yule Community. Code promo, the enter, and link this at upsign you if. Ting out check. Provider internet, your upgrade to want you if and. Thank you for listening.